speaking of the 40 days of prayer, um, already we've picked a theme and many people are writing uh, for that. So all of those writers, I uh, just to remind you, um, based on the email I sent a couple of weeks ago, we're having a brief meeting after the service, uh, about 10 minutes after the service concludes, we'll gather together in the prayer and conference room. So if you're one of those writers, it'll just be a 10 or 15 minute meeting. We'll just cover some things and pray together. So I invite you for that. If you did not get a worship outline, there are some available on the table in the back. So the, this is a good opportunity for you to grab uh, one of those. Let's, let's pray together and ask the Lord to open our hearts um, to the word of God this morning. Your word is so powerful, Lord, sharper than any two-edged sword. And today, will you prepare us for it? Help us not just to hear, but truly to do the word of God, to put it into practice for the glory of our God and Savior. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. The title of this sermon is Not Enough Time for This Sermon. I think I feel that way almost every Saturday night <laughs> and every Sunday morning. But that's not why it's titled that. We'll see as the sermon goes on why we came up with that title. I want to put a couple of pictures up on the screen. There's a lot going on to this screen. But I would like you to compare... What's happening in a typical basketball game with what on the top, with what's happening on a typical football game on the bottom. Now, there's the obvious difference that one is basketball and one is football. But if, if you could think about the players and what they do and how the team functions, can you identify any differences between what basketball players do or a basketball team does and what football players do and what a football team does. You don't need to know a whole lot about the, the games, but take a couple of minutes to turn to a couple people around you and, and chat about that. You may come up with similarities, but specifically we're looking for some differences. So take a couple of minutes to, to talk about that with people around you. All right, let's wrap those, those up. How many of your groups came up with at least one difference? Two differences, three differences, four, okay. All right, 
Hang on to those differences. All right? And later this morning, I'll show you that this really does have something to do with the Bible. We are going to look today at Hebrews chapter 11, verses 23 to 40. I invite your attention there. We're preaching through the epistle of Hebrews here at Harvest. This, in fact, is the 24th sermon in, in that series. And we're concluding chapter 11. In fact, as, as I set the context for Hebrews 11, 23 to 40, it is this. This section concludes the great chapter on faith by giving us many more examples of faith in action. So at the beginning of Hebrews chapter 11, uh, the writer said faith is confidence in what we hope for and assurance about what we do not see. And then over and over and over again through Hebrews 11, we see the little phrase, by faith, by faith this happened, and by faith this happened, and by faith this happened. And now we come to the last section of this chapter, and we get many more of those examples of things that happen by faith. I'm not going to read the entire passage now. We will read it and work through it all together as we go along. But in this section of Hebrews 11, there are three lessons about faith. There are three important lessons for us today about faith. And the first one is this. Faith enables us to do exploits for God. Faith enables us to do exploits for God. And here we go with some examples of people that through faith, they were able to do exploits for God. By faith, Moses' parents hid him for three months after he was born because they saw he was no ordinary child and they were not afraid of the king's edict. Parents... Have you ever tried to hide an infant? <laughs> that is not an easy thing to do. In fact, we, in fact, have two more infants that were born this week. Corey and Kayla Mode on, was it Wednesday, Thursday? Thursday gave birth to a baby girl, Brooklyn. And yesterday, uh, Messi and Chris Opiala gave birth to another baby girl, Eliora. They're going to find, well, they know the, the Opiala's already have children. Infants cry, and they wiggle, and they make noise. And this points us back to the time when the wicked king Pharaoh, wicked Pharaoh in, the, uh, in Egypt wanted to get rid of all the Jewish boys and any Jewish male under two years old. Let's kill them. Let's kill all the baby boys, all the Hebrews. And yet, Moses' parents had faith. They believed God had something for him. They could see he was not an ordinary child, so they were not afraid of the king's edict. And what did they do? They, they, they made a small wicker basket, and they covered it with tar, and, and, they, uh, uh, and pitched so it would float, and they put it in the reeds of the Nile, there. Now, that may seem to be a very strange thing to do, but it was a place where women congregated. And in some ways, it was a desperate move, but it beat the alternative, right? And it would almost be like someone today dropping a baby off on the steps of a hospital in hopes that someone would care for it. They did that by faith. Faith caused them not to fear the king's edict. And the original readers of Hebrews were living in a situation where Christians were being persecuted just for the sake of being persecuted, or just for the sake they were Christians. And Jewish people were being persecuted, and especially Jewish Christians were part of this. This would have been meaningful to them, not fearing the king's edict. Verse 24 by faith, Moses, when he had grown up, refused to be known as the son of Pharaoh's daughter. 
He chose to be mistreated along with the people of God rather than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. Moses could not identify with both the Egyptians and the Israelites. He had to make a choice. He truly was a Hebrew, and yet he had been raised by Pharaoh's daughter. He had been raised as an Egyptian, as a prince, and to to have great honor and to have great wealth. But what did he do? He refused to be known as as the son of Pharaoh's daughter. And what did he choose instead? He chose to be mistreated along with the people of God rather than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. The same is true of God's people today. You cannot be identified with the world system and with God. Some people foolishly try to do that, but you can't do both. 25, he regarded disgrace for the sake of Christ as of greater value than the treasures of Egypt because he was looking ahead to his reward. Moses was committed to two treasure. He wasn't just looking to the now. If he looked to the now, if he looked to the immediate, he would have seen all this treasure in Egypt that would have been at his disposal. But it's no, I'm going to look to true treasure. I'm going to look to the future. He knew there were more things in life or things that were more valuable in life than material things. It reminds us a little bit of Abraham from last week, doesn't it? It's interesting wording here. He regarded disgrace for the sake of Christ. Now, Moses lived a long time before Christ. So how can the writer say that he was regarding Uh, disgrace for the sake of Christ. What does the writer mean here? I don't don't think I can explain it better than one writer, Thomas Lee, did. So I'm just going to quote him. I think he really nails it here. Whenever God's people suffer, these sufferings are linked with sufferings on behalf of the Messiah. All that Moses suffered was in the cause of God's plan of salvation for his people. This plan ended in the insults which Christ himself bore. Since there's a similarity between the sufferings of Moses and of Christ, we can understand that Moses' suffering was indeed for the sake of the work Christ was going to accomplish. By faith, he left Egypt, not fearing the king's anger, He persevered because he saw him who is invisible. Now, this is a reference to Exodus 11. When uh, they uh, put the uh, blood on the doorpost. Actually, I'm sorry. uh, The next verse is a reference uh, to, to, to Exodus 11. But think about the fact that he saw him who was invisible. We've used this acrostic all during this series about faith, and the first one is that faith focuses on the unseen rather than on the seen. And now we turn to verse 28 that talks about the Passover. By faith, he kept the Passover and the application of blood so that the destroyer of the firstborn would not touch the firstborn of Israel. God had told them, Put this blood on the the doorposts of the houses because the destroyer is coming through. And this happened in Exodus 11. It was definitely an act of faith because it was something that he could not see. He just knew that God said to do it. Moses obeyed even without knowing the end result. Verse 29, by faith... The people passed through the Red Sea as on dry land. But when the Egyptians tried to do so, they were drowned. Moses exercised faith. Yes, we've seen Moses' parents. We've seen Moses. But it was not just Moses. It was the people of Israel themselves as they were going out of Egypt and they were going to, on the way to the promised land, there was a big body of water in the way, the Red Sea. 
And when the waters opened up, even seeing the waters opened up, it took faith for them to walk through, right? Now, we know that there were times when, they, when their faith failed and when their faith was, was weak. But here, the writer says, by faith, they passed through. They trusted God. And on the other side, later, we get to verse 30, by faith the walls of Jericho fell after the army had marched around them for seven days. Jericho was a city in the new land of Canaan, and it, in those days, of course, cities protected themselves by building walls. It was like a fortress. It was a symbol of invincibility. No one could penetrate that, and so we are going to conquer it, and here's how we're going to do it. We're going to take all of the strongest weaponry and bash the walls down and climb over the wall. No, that's not what God said to do. He said, march around it for seven days and sing and play trumpets and shout. How crazy is that idea? By faith, the walls of Jericho fell. Who attacks an enemy city that way? <laughs> Only those who believe what God says. Verse 31 by faith, the prostitute Rahab, because she welcomed the spies, was not killed with those who were disobedient. In this new land, we meet a very unlikely hero of faith. It's not, it's not a priest. It's not a great leader in God's people. In fact, it's somebody who is not historically a part of God's people. She lives in the land of Canaan, and she's a prostitute. And there's disobedience all around and yet when the spies came in, she believed there was something there that this was God's way of salvation for them, God's provision for them. And by faith, even Rahab believed and is commended for it. Verse 32, and what more shall I say? I do not have time to tell about Gideon, Barak, Samson, and Jephthah, about David and Samuel and the prophets. That's where the title of the sermon comes from. He's, the, the writer just says, I, I don't have time to tell you about all these people. There's no time for this sermon. Can't tell you about all of them, but he, but he tries a little bit. Verse 32, we read about six men. The first four lived during the period of the judges, and that was a time when it was critical to have faith because the description of the period of the judges was that was a time when, quote, everyone did what was right in their own eyes. The first four lived in there. They was followed by David and Samuel and the prophets. We're getting a sweep of Old Testament history, and we're seeing faith, 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 faith. And their courageous deeds are summarized beginning in verse 33, who through faith conquered kingdoms, administered justice, and gained what was promised, who shut the mouths of lions. Anybody remember a man named Daniel? Quenched the fury of the flames, escaped the edge of the sword, whose weakness was turned to strength, and who became powerful in battle and routed foreign armies. Women received back their dead, raised to life again. And here's the point in this long section. Faith enables us to do exploits for God. These people did great things for God. It was amazing the things that happened, and it happened by faith. And so he's given us this description of different people that had faith. Moses' parents had faith. Moses had faith. Jericho was an illustration of faith. Going through the Red Sea, Rahab and I just don't have enough time. And let me ask you this question. Here's the question for you today. What kind of exploit does God want you to attempt for him by faith? I think of William Carey, attempt great things for God, expect great things from God. But if you're a Christian, if you belong to Jesus Christ, what kind of exploit does God want you to accomplish today?
could it be maybe for some, it might be reaching your neighbors for Christ. You might look around at the people that live around you in your apartments or condo or neighborhood, and, and you look at people that their lives are just not following Christ, and you, you're, you might think, how in the world could I ever reach them for Christ? I don't have anything in common with them, or maybe even if you do, I'm scared. I don't know what to say. And maybe the exploit is to kind of claim God's working in that area. Maybe it's that. Maybe it's going on a mission trip, and you feel some prompting from God to go on a mission trip, but maybe you're scared and maybe you need faith, or maybe it's going to the mission field, period, long term. Maybe it's introducing the love of Christ and the gospel to students at a public school here in Charlotte. Maybe that would be your exploit. Maybe for some of you, it might be right in your own family. It might be parents, your parents, and that one or few lives. Your exploit is trying to turn the tide of this culture that's blurring all the lines between right and wrong and raising up young champions for Christ who will stand for him and live for him. Now, maybe some of you might be listening and think, well, I'm too young to do any great exploits for Christ. I mean, that's, you know, that's for adults or, or mature adults or whatever. Maybe I'm just too young. Well, in case you're thinking about that, let me remind you that Joseph was, on, was 17 when his brothers sold him into slavery, and he soon after, a few years after, became second in command in Egypt. Samuel heard the voice of the Lord at age 11, when they were looking for a king and they brought out the different brothers who might be the king, it was the youngest brother, David, whom was chosen. Timothy was maybe 25 years old when he served the church in Ephesus. We bring it into more contemporary times. Harriet Tubman escaped slavery and at, she became a slave at 27. She escaped uh, or she became a slave early. She escaped, we believe, when she was about 27. It's hard to date her life completely. But probably before she was 30 years old, she was a part of saving hundreds of sl people from slavery through the Underground Railroad all before she was 30 years old. She became known, interestingly, as the Moses of her people. You're not too young to attempt great exploits for God. Maybe you're thinking, on the other hand, I'm too old. That's just, that's for all those, you know, I'm, I'm at the stage in life that I'm just kind of starting to put it on cruise control, and we're going to let younger people attempt exploits for God. Well, let me consider this. Sarah was 90 years old when she gave birth, and Abraham was 100 when Isaac was born. Moses was chosen to lead the Israelites out of bondage at age 80, and his helper Aaron was 83. Joshua led the conquest of Canaan in the last 30 years of his life from age 80 to 110. More contemporary times, B.H. Carroll was an elderly Baptist preacher in the early uh, 1900s, completely deaf, he was riding on a train through the, uh, the Texas panhandle. And he had the thought that there should, be a, there should be a seminary that could train Baptist pastors. We're not Baptists here, but we thank God for everybody who loves Jesus. And in this environment... He knew that, you know, there were law schools to train lawyers. There were medical schools to train doctors. And he thought, there should be a, a seminary that, that can train. And he thought, maybe I should be the one that starts it. And again, this is early 1900s. <laughs> At first, he kind of dismissed it. But then he was so overwhelmed with it. While he's on the train, he stands up. 
<laughs> he stands up on the train and says, Lord, if it is clearly your will, what is impossible with man is possible with God. Go with me and I will try. And everybody on the train was just looking at him. <laughs> and some of them were amused by it and some of them were amazed by it. But he indeed decided to do it and he founded Southwestern Baptist Theological Seminary in Fort Worth, Texas in 1908. A few people have graduated that from that seminary that you might know, like Charles Stanley and Rick Warren, Louis Giglio, and about 44,000 others since 1908. You're not too old to do exploits for God. So we're going to do it a little bit differently this morning. Often, most often, we preach the Word of God, and then we have a prayer response. But we're going to intermingle the prayer response with it. I, I want to give you a couple of minutes right now to just pray about it and ask, Lord, what exploit do you want me to do for you? You can pray alone. You can pray with somebody beside you. But this is time to pray and ask God about by faith, what exploits to do for him. Oh, Lord, we do thank you for the, the way that you use so many people to conquer and to be victorious and to do exploits for you. And, Lord, we pray for the people of Harvest Community Church that follow you, that they will not be satisfied with living for this life, just getting through life, based on the Word of God and the things that you reveal in the Word of God and impress on their minds and hearts through the Holy Spirit, will you do great exploits. So faith indeed enables us to do great exploits for God. But right here, as we come to the passage in the middle of verse 35, things change. Things look different. Because all of these statements have been about people conquering and moving forward and doing all of these great things. And now, now it, the tenor and the tone changes. Exploits are great and exciting, but the Christian life involves more than just attempting great things for God. Sometimes it involves enduring hard things for God. And that's what we get as we move towards the end of the chapter. Faith enables us to endure suffering for God. In the middle of verse 35, there were others who were tortured 
refusing to be released so that they might gain an even better resurrection. Some faced jeers and flogging and even chains and imprisonment. They were put to death by stoning. They were sawed in two. They were killed by the sword. They went about in sheepskins and goatskins, destitute, persecuted and mistreated. The world was not worthy of them. They wandered in deserts and mountains, living in caves and in holes in the ground. Who wants to sign up? You see, in our statement on faith, our summary on faith, the H stands for it helps in a variety of situations and and, and outcomes. The fact that we have faith in God does not always change things for the better. Sometimes God changes us for the better. And it's uncomfortable and it's hard. But I would not be telling you the truth if I somehow misled you to believe that if you put your faith in Christ then you're going to be all easy from now on. The truth is, sometimes faith indeed does allow us to do great exploits for for God, and sometimes it allows us to endure for God the suffering that comes in His name. Maybe you need to live by faith by trusting God in a variety of ways. Maybe it's leaning on the grace of God in a serious illness. Maybe it's staying true to your marriage vows when it's hard to do so. Maybe it's refusing to go along with the popular crowd, the in crowd at school as they live openly immoral lives, but by faith you trust God anyway. Maybe it's refusing to act unethically at work when it seems like everybody else is and maybe even your supervisors expect it. How did God respond to their faith? Verse 39, these all were commended for their faith. God is the one that gives the commendation. They were commended for their faith, yet none of them received what had been promised. Since God had planned something better for us so that only together with us would they be made perfect. As Raymond Brown puts it, in some of life's situations, it is impossible to conquer, escape, become mighty, or victorious. The powers are too great. The circumstances beyond our control. In these cases, faith is a life-accepting quality, enabling a man or woman to face suffering and adversity with serenity, endurance, and trust. And notice that in verse 39, none of them received everything that was promised. The ultimate promise came true when Jesus Christ came to earth. But these earlier people of faith looked forward in some ways to God's Messiah without ever seeing him. None of them saw the promise of the coming Christ. Now, while there are differences between the two groups, the people of God in the Old Covenant and the people of God in the New Covenant, for both of them, perfection or fulfillment only comes through the new covenant, which was made possible by a better sacrifice. And, of course, Hebrews has uh, covered that in great ground up to this point. We've talked about the new covenant and the, the, the perfect sacrifice of Jesus. Believers in the old covenant could never reach that perfection, 
But when Christ came, he changed that. Hebrews 2.10 says he brought many sons and daughters to glory. Hebrews 10.14 says, for by one sacrifice he has made perfect forever those who are being made holy. So the work of Christ on the cross enabled both Old Testament and New Testament believers to share in the perfection of Christ. So here's a question for you. What circumstance or circumstance says Does God want you to endure by faith? What circumstance does God want you to endure by faith? So, like we did before, I want you to pray about it. Maybe with someone, maybe alone. And if right now there are no circumstances at all in your life that you have to endure by faith, pray for some others because there may be others around. (laughs) But let's take a couple of minutes to pray about this. Holy Father, you know those that are undergoing hard, hard circumstances. And together as a body, we lift them into your hands. We pray they will endure for the sake of Christ. They will draw strength for the sake of Christ, and they will trust you your goodness, even if they can't see. Well, there's one more lesson we learn about faith. We've learned that faith enables us to attempt exploits for God or do exploits for God and enables us to endure suffering for God. And really all of the chapter, I think a lesson is faith is for all types of people. Faith is for all types of people. Think about the different types of people that have been mentioned in Hebrews 11. Some of them were well-known leaders, people you know, people like Abraham, right, and Moses. Some of them were unknown. They aren't even named. And we'll never know their name on earth and maybe not even heaven. I don't know. We know they trusted God. Some of them were leaders who had weaknesses. All all these leaders that were named, if we had time, we could go point to instances where their faith failed, right? Abraham, the great example of faith. There were times when his faith failed, and and we could do it. There there were leaders with weaknesses. And then, then there were just sinners who trusted God. Gideon was praised for his faith, but he was afraid. Barak hesitated. Samson got messed up with the wrong woman. We know King David's moral failures, and Samuel was careless. John Calvin writes this, There was none of them whose faith did not falter. In every saint, there is always to be found something reprehensible. 
Nevertheless, although faith may be imperfect and incomplete, it does not cease to be approved by God. There's no reason, therefore, why the fault from which we labor should break us or discourage us, provided we go on by faith in the race of our calling. Not everyone is Abraham. Some are Rahab. But faith pleases God and all types of people. And maybe, just maybe, it's time for you to stop comparing yourselves with others or even with your own standards for yourself that are unbiblical and time to say, from this point forward, by the grace of God, I am going to exercise faith in Christ. So here's a question for you. What about yourself do you need to release to God by faith? What about yourself do you need to release to God by faith? And again, just take a minute or two to pray about it, either alone or with someone else, and then I'll come back and we'll wrap it up. Lord, we are so thankful today that being a person of faith is not about who we are and it's not about our attaining great things on our own. It is so much more about the object of our faith. It is about you. And we're going to hear soon as we keep going through Hebrews, that you are the author and the perfecter of our faith. Lord, wherever people are today on the spectrum, help them not to look at themselves, but to look to Jesus and to trust him. In fact, faith is where the Christian life starts. <laughs> this is written for believers, and I have been speaking to believers, but let me remind you of the great passage in Ephesians chapter 2, 8 and 9. For it is by grace you have been saved through, what's the next word? Faith. And that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God. Not by works, so that no one can boast. So if you're not yet a believer in Jesus Christ, if you're not a Christian, see your sin today, see your need, see Christ's sacrifice. And as he, if he's drawing you in your heart, say yes. Believe by faith. Now, let's go back to the opening slide. And let's think about what differences there might be between basketball and football. I heard one over here. They've already told me this one. So what was your answer? Kim was noticing that basketball is a much more squeaky sport. Basketball is a much more squeaky sport. You, you, the tennis shoes squeak on the thing. And Thank you for that answer. That's not what I was looking for. But thank you for that answer. 
What are some other differences here in this section, these couple sections? TJ, yeah. The weather is definitely more predictable. And what's that? Well, in most most basketball games, yeah. I mean, basketball is mostly indoors, right? And football is mostly outdoors. But yes, that that's that's a different. Okay, Mohan, yes. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah, football. You're looking on the ground. I mean, lots happening right here. Um, and basketball, it's up. Although, all right. Uh, how about let's move into these couple of sections here? Okay. Yeah, Mike. Mike. Someone very close to you, who shall remain nameless, said that some of them are more mean to each other. Than uh, that. That's true. Although I've been in some basketball games where there was, you know, the elbows and the hip checks and all that. Okay, yeah. That's true. Football field is a lot bigger than the basketball court. That is, uh, that is definitely true. That is, that is right. A lot more equipment you wear in football. That's because of all the mean people <laughs> that are going to hit you. Right, yeah. You got one in? <laughs> in basketball, they go after the ball. In football, they go after the person. <laughs> Most of the time, <laughs> that, that, that's true. Okay, yeah, join they don't tackle each other most of the time in basketball, although it, it has happened. All right, you guys are good. How about these other two sections over here? Did you come up with any that haven't been mentioned? Th that's right. There are more football players, right? You can see there. there are, we, I don't know if all 11. You can't see all 11. There are 11 on each side. Basketball is five on each side. That's right. That's true. Uniforms, they both wear uniforms, but different types of uniforms, definitely. Yeah, shorts, for yeah, kind of everything's covered almost. All right, any others? Stan, the man who Stan, stand up here. This man played basketball in leagues until you were how old did you play in leagues? 77. He played in leagues till he was 77 years old. So I think we're about to get the expert answer here now. <laughs> it's okay to dribble in basketball. <laughs> this is true. <laughs> Jennifer, you have to, I'm sorry. face-to-face, -face, the mean people, right? So a lot, lot, of, lot of good differences. Now, I, I was thinking of one in particular, and I don't know if anybody got it. Nobody has said it. Uh-oh, one more answer. The balls are different, yes, but, no, sorry, too late. <laughs> in football, when you are a football player, you either play offense or defense. Almost all the time. There are some very rare occasions when somebody will play both offense and defense. But so in this picture here, the, the team in the green and gold or green and yellow. Is, Corey, is that gold or yellow? What color is the Packers? Is that gold? Green and gold. They're on offense. They have the ball. They're trying to score. So they're an offensive player. They might be a guard, a tackle, a quarterback, a receiver, a running back, a tight end or whatever, but they're, they're on offense. They got one thing in mind, and that's to score. And the defense, on the other hand, they're in the white uniforms. They're, they're trying to keep the other team from scoring, right? And so after 
you know, they score a touchdown or they punt or whatever, then you'll watch in a football game, they'll switch out, right? The offensive players will go over onto the bench because they've been hit by all the mean people and they'll, they'll relax a little bit and a new group will come out. But your offense or defense in basketball, this is very interesting. The same players are expected to play both offense and defense. In basketball, if you're on the team and your team has the ball, you're trying to score. But it's not like you go down and score and then you call timeout and the five offensive guys go off and now five defensive guys come on every single time. Right? You go back and forth. You're playing offense and then the next minute you're playing defense. Is it offense, then defense? Offense, then defense. Stan, by the way, were you better at offense or defense? <laughs> Offense and defense. It's multifaceted. It covers a lot of things. Now, what does that have to do with Hebrews 11? I am so glad you asked, and you probably are too. On God's team, on God's team, all kinds of people with faith in Christ. Remember, we've looked at all kinds of people today. Leaders, well-known, not well-known, people we don't know their name, great reputations, sinful people like prostitutes, all kinds of people with Christ, what do they do? They play both offense and defense. Church, sometimes we play offense by faith. Sometimes we go out and say, I want to take that area. I want to take that city for Christ. I want to take that neighborhood for Christ. I want to take that mission for Christ. I, I, it, it's offense, and I need to trust. I need faith so that I can uh, do this exploit. And that's great. And I would say, praise God, have faith. Sometimes it's defense. Sometimes the attacks are coming. Sometimes the suffering comes. And what gets us through those times to play defense, so to speak, is faith in Christ. Does that make sense? If you're not a sports fan, does that make sense? Okay. Let's stand for prayer.